0: Why you should not have your child specialize in one sport from a physical and a mental standpoint. How he and his wife survived a deadly tsunami in Thailand back in 2004. How his methodology of the scoring method helps people improve their golf game both on and off the course. And how to not take on the victim mentality and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 211 with PGA professional golf coach Will Robbins. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to become the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do in order to get there. And because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose a sense of direction, which is why so many people fall short of their true potential. But that's why I'm here. That's why I create videos, podcasts, and programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I bring you such a cool episode with Will Robbins. Will has been a PGA professional coach since 2008 and he has a super cool and unique coaching methodology called The Scoring Method. And I'm actually taking his online course right now because I'm a big golf guy myself and it's already been such a game changer. So if you're a golf person yourself, make sure you take a look at the link in the show notes and go to his course called The Scoring Method. He also shares a really special story about how he and his wife survived a tsunami back in Thailand in 2004 that killed over 250,000 people. While you're listening to the episode make sure you tag me on instagram at carrier underscore best you to let me know what your favorite part is now before we dive into the episode i know monday mornings can be so hard to get motivated i know they can be the bane of your existence but not if you receive my monday motivation trio 111 newsletter every single monday morning i send out one motivational quote one inspiring video and one killer workout to get your week started with a bang so just go to nickcarrier.com slash 111 newsletter to get this in your inbox every Monday morning. Again, it's nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter. Without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with this super inspiring story from PGA professional coach, Will Robbins. All right, what's up everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up today to have the one and only Will Robbins with me today. Uh, Will, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today.
1: Hey, great to be on the goal.
0: Yeah, of course. So. Will is a PGA professional uh, teacher, and he started teaching the game back in 2008. And I think it was a few weeks ago now, about a month ago now, where I was watching CBS, I think right before the golf tournament was about to come on. And they were showing some different videos, and your video came up on CBS for 8, nine, ten minutes, whatever it is, about your story. And afterwards, I was just like, I've got to get this guy on my podcast. And so I'm super pumped, to. Be able to have you on and talk about your story and talk about all the things that you're currently working on as well. So to kind of give everybody a little bit more context, um, I want to give a, before again I'm getting into the story. Um, you moved to the U.S. from England in 2002 because you wanted oh, to pursue. No, no, back in 96. 96? Okay. The video. I'm going to blame the video that I watched because the video I watched. I think they say all
1: sorts of things. It's like, oh, really? I, there were a couple of things I heard that I was like. I'm not exactly sure if that's true. <laughs> yeah. really- 96, I came out to, America to play college golf. Yeah, I came okay. to play college golf in Monterey and uh, played college golf for two years there and then moved over to West Palm Beach and finished up my, my uh, business degree there and then moved back to Pebble Beach to, to play, play golf.
0: Okay, so at kind of at what point when you were growing up, did you kind of realize that this golf thing was something that I could potentially pursue full-time?
1: Yeah, so uh, um, I, I was I lived in Florida for two years when I was seven, and I told my mom I was like I'm gonna live in America when I'm older. She's like oh that's lovely darling. And then at 13 I took up golf, and uh, about 14 I told her I'm gonna I'm gonna play college golf in America, and she's like okay that's wonderful darling. And at 17 I was calling her saying hey mom I need some more money because I'm out at college in America. So 13 I took it up, and at 17 I was in America playing college golf and. Uh, yeah, just from from that, I, I mean, I, I hit golf balls when I was probably eight with my dad. And I'd play occasionally once once or twice a year maybe, but at 13 is when I took it up and just instantly fell in love and within three years was playing pretty pretty good golf and and, and came out to the States.
0: Gotcha. Well, that's a pretty quick, I feel like three years is, I don't know how long people who play college golf are, tradi- like how early they traditionally start playing, but I feel like three years is... Um, relatively short amount of time to kind of pick it up and learn it. So did it kind of come naturally to you or was your dad a really good coach or what allowed you to pick it up so quickly?
1: No, my dad is, uh, is a, I love playing with my dad, but he would never <laughs> say he's a good golfer. You know, he just loves playing the game um, has a very unique grip, uh, extremely strange setup and uh, gets the ball in the hole. So, you know, he's <laughs> uh, he definitely just set me up with like, let's go, you know, let's go and play. Um, I played cricket and rugby and athletics and all sorts of sports when I was a kid. So I think, you know, what we see nowadays with students is if you build an athlete first um, golf, isn't that difficult to take up. Whereas if you, just try and learn golf, but you don't know body movement or body awareness, or, or you don't have flexibility or core strength. It's pretty difficult. So I took it up at 13, but I just lived at the golf course. I mean, I physically lived at the golf course. I'd stay, you know, they had a place where we could stay, I'd uh, stay with the assistant pros and hit balls till 12 at night and wake up in the morning and play 36 holes and just lived, eat and breathed golf. Um, and so, yeah, I got good very quickly and, um, realized that I either wanted to drop out of school because in England you just don't there's no college golf. So I was either gonna drop out of school at sixteen, which is a terrible idea, or go to America and uh and get a good education and, and and obviously play much better golf at an amateur level rather than trying to turn professional at a young age. So it worked out just just truly blessed the way it worked out.
0: Yeah. Well I I actually didn't think I was gonna ask a question about this because you kinda of, but you kinda of brought up the topic of kids at a young age, either specializing in a specific sport or playing numerous different sports. And I know you uh, have worked with a lot of young kids and, and children and teenagers and stuff like that in golf. How important or what do you try to what's the point that you try to get across to maybe parents who are trying to make the decision of like, do we throw them in full throttle into this one sport? Or do we keep them in a diversity of sports?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really the education that's now happening and, and needs to happen more. Um, there's the ADM is called the American Development Model, just to kind of take it a little bit out of context. But um, when you become an Olympic sport, which golf is now again, the the Olympic committee wants to see that you're growing the game. Because to be an Olympic athlete, you have to have a million, you know, it's a million to one shot, right? So you better have a million people playing the game or no, you're never going to have an Olympian. And so it's really about how do you now educate people? So this model that the PGA of America has put together, and I've been very blessed to be part of the committee working on it, is this whole concept of, you know, how do you build an athlete? How do you get parents to understand that if you can't skip, it's unlikely you're going to be able to swing a golf club. If you can't hit a tennis ball with a tennis racket, it's unlikely you're going to be able to hit a tennis, a golf ball with a golf club because it's further away and it's smaller. And so to me, it's about, you know, teaching movement skills. It's about making it fun. And it's not really about trying to build a golf swing at a young age. It's about playing games. Um, And then I think that what you run into is is that parents love their children. I love my kids and I want to give them the best. And so what you usually find is a lot of parents, I mean, they're doing what they think is right, um, but it's not based on science. It's based on what other people are doing. And so what I always know is when a parent's spending a lot of money and and putting their kids in tournaments and getting them private swing instruction and buying them new golf clubs, it's because they love their child and they want their child to succeed. It's just realizing that if my child loved chocolate, I wouldn't buy him chocolate every day and buy him as many chocolate bars as he wanted and give him chocolate. Now, you might say, well... Golf is more healthy than chocolate. Yes, I'm sure it is. But at the same time, what it's doing to his body is actually worse off because when you're swinging a club at five, six, seven years old and you're doing it three or 400 times a day, every day of the year till you're 17, well, you know, that's when your body starts to deteriorate. So, you know, early specialization, this isn't me saying it, this is all the scientists saying it leads to, and this is the Olympic Committee saying don't specialize early, you know, because it leads to injury it leads to kids dropping out of the sport because by the age of 13, they've done it for seven or eight years and they're bored. Um, it also leads to early peak, you know, where they basically, they're amazing at 11, but then they go through a growth spurt. They lose their confidence because they don't, they're now four inches tall and they were two weeks ago and they don't know where their body is. They lose confidence and then they drop out of the game. And so I think to me it's directing, um, that love that a parent has for their child and saying like, look, how do we, how do we balance this out? You know, how do they become a champion in golf and life, not just in golf? Because if your kid played the piano every single day for 10 years, they'd be good at the piano, but it doesn't mean that that's good for them. And it doesn't mean that that's what they want. And so I think there's that balance that a golf coach has to really help, help students and parents to build a relationship where they can, help that child develop in all the ways from school to to life, to athletics, to golf, uh, rather than just, you know, early specialization at seven and your your kids are phenom. Well, guess what? They're not that much of a phenom. Do you know what I mean? Because there's lots of kids out there all over the world that are shooting low scores. It's what they're doing at 23. That's impressive. Like Colin Morikawa, that's impressive. It's not what, what Colin was doing at six, you know? Right.
0: Right. No, I think that's an awesome point. And I'm definitely a big believer in that. And since you're A part of that committee that has the conversations around that. You know, you you talked about the science in regards to the physical aspect of the body and how it's actually not beneficial to specialize in in one sport or one movement pattern, if you will. And but also how much of the conversation is around. Kind of the intangible things in regards to playing a lot of different sports so you learn the competitive aspect and the team aspect and the failure aspect and things like
1: that is there a decent amount of conversation around that as well oh absolutely yeah i mean the mental part's a huge part i mean what what they're seeing is obviously you know a lot of parents now want to take away pain um, but unfortunately, that's how we learn. Failure, if you change the word failure to feedback and realize that when something doesn't go right, you look at it and go, that didn't go right. How do I change? Well, that's feedback. And a lot of times what we're trying to do now, parents and coaches are trying to take out, oh, don't worry, you had a bad round. Let's just quit halfway through. Or we'll, we won't fill out the scorecard. Or you know the course is in good condition. So let's just leave now and not play in the tournament, even though we've signed up. I mean, you see it all the time because they don't want to ruin their score. Or their scoring average or the colleges are looking at them and, and to me it's like no no no, they shouldn't be playing in tournaments anyway at five you know what i mean at five and six years old they should be having a ton of fun getting on the golf course and if they want to throw it out the sand throw it out the sand and if they want to learn how to fill out a scorecard great but as they develop how do you make it about fun how do you make it about them learning what is needed and really playing games is what they want to do and it's, it's okay to have healthy competition it's just that when the competition is <clears throat> focused on winning and having to shoot a low score, anytime a kid is crying, you've done a bad job. You know, you've gone beyond their comfort level. You want to see them having lots and lots of fun. And if you're saying, well, you know, he came second, he missed that putt on the last hole and he's crying, yeah, I understand, but that's not usually when it's happening. You know, I'm seeing it when a parent is standing behind a student saying, you ain't left and you hit it in the water. That's when, let's be honest, that's when the crying's really happening. It's when a, a child is, feels like they're letting their parent down when they hit a bad golf shot, not that they came second and they missed a four foot putt on the last hole. Okay, that's emotional, but still, you don't cry when you lose. You mm-hmm. cry when you win, that's okay, but we need to teach those ethics of. Listen, it's tough, but this is what makes you stronger. Now let's go and work at it harder. So, you know, I, I might sound like I'm pretty opinionated about it because I think a lot of juniors, and I am because a lot of juniors don't have that protective barrier. It's sort of like the parent driving them to success. Mm. I get it. The parent loves their child. I understand that. But at the same time, you're not a professional golfer. You're also, I'm not a scientist. And so I'm going to listen to scientists working with the best athletes in the world over years and years understanding the child development understanding learning patterns understanding modeling understanding biomechanics and say let's let's put our trust in them and teach professionals how to take those tools and give that to parents so that we have Kids playing golf for life. Kids having fun, learning core values, life skills, character, and really becoming champions on and off the golf course. That that's what's important to, to me, and I believe the the students and parents that I I teach.
0: Yeah, I love all those things. I could talk about that kind of stuff all day long, but I want to make sure I kind of get into a big part of the story. You know, that was on the the special that I that I mentioned is going to give a lot of people uh, inspiration. I know, and and some more context on you. So, you guys, you got. Uh, married to your wife Amanda and then you guys had a trip out to Thailand back in 2004 make sure that that year is right um and so you guys get to Thailand you're having an awesome time and I just kind of want you to pick up the story and run with it from there to give people the uh the context and the entire story
1: yeah so we we just got married um I just signed a three year sponsorship (laughs) deal to play professional golf um I was going to go to Q school for the Canadian tour, um, come October, uh, just to spend a year getting, you know, prepped there and see how well I could do and then hopefully make my way towards the web.com and then hopefully the PGA tour one day, you know, like many of my friends and, and buddies wanted to do. And so i signed a three year contract, got married, bought a house, bought a dog and went on our honeymoon and it was fantastic. Went to Thailand and, Uh, On the last day, it was, should we hang out by the pool or should we rent a speedboat and go to some of the islands and do some snorkeling? And um, that was kind of the last conversation that my wife and I had. And, uh, uh, you know, what happened next was not knowing, but uh, earlier that morning, the Sumatra earthquake had happened, uh, and that had triggered a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, which is the largest in recorded history, I believe. Uh, and we didn't know that there was a tsunami barreling towards our um, our island. And our island was uh, a sandbar in the middle of the in Andaman Sea uh, with no protection. And so I just remember everybody running and having no idea what was happening. Uh, everybody screaming and realizing that obviously something bad was happening, but no idea of what was about to happen. And uh, we basically ran... And hit a, it jumped over a counter in the hotel, ran into a back office and got on the ground. I mean, my thought was that terrorism, because it was 2004, so Bali, the Bali bombing had just happened. 9-11 was very fresh in all of our minds. And I'm thinking, okay, someone got off the boat and is shooting people or what was happening. But you're never thinking that a 45-foot wave moving at 100 miles an hour is about to wipe out your hotel. Um mm-hmm. And so we got down on the ground. The next thing you know, uh, it just, boom, you know, just a huge explosion. Um, And it just kept going and going. I looked at my wife and um, she said to me, this is it. And I said, it's not. And the next thing you know, the whole hotel just collapsed in on us. The, The room that we were in, the solid concrete room just collapsed and we went underwater and I let go of my wife's hand. I couldn't feel her anymore. And we went off on a journey about four or 500 yards underwater and um, realized that I was out of breath and I was, wasn't going to make it. And so just decided that you know, it was so painful because I was inside the hotel room. I wasn't in the water. I was inside a concrete washing machine uh, getting crushed and smashed and just decided it was, you know, this was it. I'd run out of oxygen and I'd lost my wife. And I, I remember my head crushing when the wall hit me. I mean, it was so hard. I felt my head crush and I just thought inhale the water and let it all be over. And at that moment, I just, you know, I, I'm, God just, I have, I'm a person of faith just said, just like, no, you know, I'm, you're going to die fighting. You know, it was kind of that, that feeling of, I know my life's over, but I'm going to die fighting. So I wasn't going to inhale the water. I was going to inhale the water because my lungs opened up because I had to breathe, but I wasn't going to intentionally going to, going to take the water on. Um And that was it. I just said, I'm going to die fighting. And and I knew at that, that point I surrendered my life. I was done. Um, and that split seven, second, bang, I came out of the water. I was in the middle of the ocean in perfect bright white light um, and I looked at the Island and the Island was completely gone. And, uh, I was on the other side of the Island, out know, in the middle of the ocean. And, um, my wife popped up about three feet from me and was, uh, right alongside me, just screaming. She'd broken a pelvis in three places and I'd broken a few bones here and there. And, um, we were just, uh, floating in the middle of the ocean. Um, and at that point I realized, okay, wow, a tsunami just hit the Island. And, uh, from there very long story short got pulled onto a boat by a dear friend uh called marcus melberg i didn't know him at the time but he saved our lives pulled us onto a boat and we spent the next uh, about um, 12 hours watching the island get destroyed um and watching just the carnage of what happens after a, a tsunami in the middle of the ocean until we got taken to a little ho- a little hospital um on the island of uh, phuket Um, And spent um, two days there with no medication, my wife with a triple pelvic fracture, uh, me with a broken collarbone and lacerates and lacerations and some head trauma. Uh, And then finally got medically evacuated uh, up to Bangkok and spent five weeks in hospital there and then flew back to America and spent about three months going to hospital most days, Um, just, you know, for all sorts of different things and um yeah bam there was a uh, married life underway so oh my lord yeah talk about a, a tested
0: a tested marriage early on i guess i mean more from the more from the life or death standpoint but um geez so i know you guys had you both had severe injuries and she was a uh, Teacher and lost her job, and you couldn't pick up a club for a long period of time. In the video, it said six months, but uh, yeah,
1: it was about that. It was about six months that I didn't, I couldn't touch a club, and then for about up to about a year until I could really play again.
0: Okay, so during that period of time, what was going through your head in regards to am I gonna go back to pursuing a career in golf, or what was kind of going through
1: your head in terms of your life moving forward after that? Um, I knew right away that I would go back and play professionally. I'm I'd like, a, I was just, I just knew that the minute, I mean, while I was in hospital, I knew that I would go back and play. Um, what was happening in my life though was, you know, I think, um, and <clears throat> I think I know that when I surrendered my life, basically God took over <clears throat> and some people, you know, if you're not a person of faith, it's okay. I mean, I wasn't either. But what my experience was is that when I surrendered, God took over and it was amazing. Um, just it didn't matter what happened, it was gonna be okay. Like we lost everything. We lost, you know, we lost all of our stuff. But then somehow our bag shows up and this American guy comes in and goes, Hey, I think this is you guys, here's your two pictures. I actually have it on my desk right here. Hold on. This was in a bag in in another hotel that we'd left that got washed out that they found. I don't know if you can see that my yeah. elephant. Um and, you know, get home. My wife loses her job. And um, our insurance company says, sorry, uh, you don't have uh, flood insurance. Um, sorry, you don't have earthquake insurance. So it was an earthquake that started a thousand miles away. So we can't give you any money. And the next day, our insurance broker walks in the door, knocks on the door and goes, here's $5,000. We're so sorry. I don't know what this company's thinking, but this is from us. We, we're we here for you 100%. And then the Red Cross came in and gave us money and, and, and helped us out. And it didn't matter what happened. It was just like, I just knew no matter what happened, it was going to be okay. Oh, your wife lost your job. It's going to be fine, babe. Like, I had no idea what's going to happen, but it was just this willingness to put my put my faith in in God. And so uh, it was just a blessing. And so I didn't know how I'd get back to golf, but a friend of mine was like, hey, do you want to start teaching? I'm like, no, I didn't say that to him, but I was like, not really. And then I was like, well, I have a job and we're not making any money. Probably wouldn't be a bad idea like, to actually make some money over the next six months. So I got a job teaching, you know, went into the interview and I remember a good friend of mine, Brent Cohen, and, you know, he was like, so uh, how much do you want to charge? I was, oh, 60 bucks. He's like, when do you want to start? I was like, Friday. He's like, okay, um, sounds good. I was like, "Well, oh, is that the interview? And he's like, yeah, you got a job. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, you know, just blessing after blessing that happened. Um And, you know, thing, yeah, just just everything that could have gone right went right for us. Now, if you looked at it, we were in a lot of pain. We were injured, but 250,000 people lost their lives that day, and I I had my wife. And so anything on top of that was going to be positive. And so, you know, over that next year, I I got to start coaching the game of golf and start to get back around golf and um, start to heal and and kind of take it from there. Yeah.
0: So you had mentioned how right away when your friend – asked you if you wanted to co- come coach golf, you were kind of like, no, like, I don't want to do that. But then you did it for, kind of kind of because you had to. So at what point in your coaching career, if you will, did you make that shift in your head that was like, oh, like, actually, I want to keep doing this thing. And kind of alongside with that, was it more of a, I think the PGA career or PGA Tour career is... Kind of passed me or not possible or was it like more the i love the coaching
1: yeah so um the, the the advantage that i had is when i went to go and start teaching if i had been a golf like thinking i was gonna be a golf pro i said right i gotta go and get some certifications and join the pga and i need to do one-hour lessons and blah blah, blah go down that route well i got there and i was like well i'm not because i'm gonna six months from now, I won't be coaching. I'll be playing again. So I don't need to do that. And if someone wants to get a lesson with me, I'm going to teach them how to play because that's what I know how to do. And so people will come out for lessons and they were just confused. They'd be like, okay, so I'm working on my hip slide. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, like, you don't have a hip slide. You can't make contact with it. Like, you know, like they're telling me all this stuff on this pro taught me this and this. And I'm like, can we get in the golf cart and go and play golf? Because you make no sense. I'm confused and I'm a professional. Can we just go and play? And we get on the golf course and play, and like instantly, they'd get their game would come around because they'd be like, "Well, I got to get rid of my slice." I'm like, "It's the only thing you do consistently. Why would you want to get rid of it?" I'm like, "Who cares? It moves thirty yards in the air, but it moves thirty yards in the air every freaking time. Like that's called consistency. If you hit it thirty yards right and thirty yards left, you have a problem. Like, just play it, aim left and cut it." Well, my pro told me, "Well, okay, your pro told you, but guess what? Did he have to do it to make a living? No. He he he's teaching you to, to stay in business." So you get a better golf swing. Not that he's doing the wrong thing, but it's delusional. Like, I mean, if your car doesn't have gas in it and your your engine guy tells you we need to replace the engine, he's selling you a bunch of baloney, right? You just need to fill it up with gas. And so we'd go and play. And so I had this, this mindset of like, I don't really care what you think, you know, let me just teach you how to get the ball in the hole. And so I got insane results. So every time I practiced, my guys were practicing with me. They were playing with me. And they loved it and i really enjoyed it and i got paid so six months after so the following february so this is this is 14 months later i went to q school um for the canadian tour and i shot in eh, the last couple rounds i shot 75 72 the last two rounds and so i missed it by three or four so i played i think i shot like I don't know, 73 72 74 75 75 72 or something like that so I was just a few off. So I was like, well, I'm pretty close. Well, I can go back to playing. So then I get my sponsors. My sponsors all said, yeah, my God, I can't believe you're going to do this. Let's get We'll happy to pay, you know, keep you going. And I play a tournament, shoot 77, 73, miss the cut. It's like, oh, okay, but I really enjoy being out there and then go home, coach, have a great time, hanging out, enjoying myself, playing golf, getting paid, go to a tournament, shoot 73, 76, miss the cut, come back, do this now. I'm pretty hard headed. And I couldn't hit golf balls. My neck hurt me so much that I couldn't actually practice. I could, but it would just be too painful to practice. So I had to really limit the amount of balls I could hit. And I'd go to tournaments, I'd be away from my wife, I'd be playing tournaments. I wanted to be doing it, but it was just not happening. And I'd shoot a 71, then a 74, miss the cut, you know? And so I'm spending $3,000 being gone, come home and make 1,500 playing golf and having a good time. You'd think most normal people who are logical, who have any brain, would have got this after about three weeks. <laughs> I would say that was 2005 so 2006 so this is 2006 by 2007 i'm really now starting to realize like like god this is not fun like i mean i'm just i i'm in pain every time i hit a golf ball um i'm grinding like my short game's amazing but i'm shooting 72s and and i'm hitting it all over the place because i just really aren't able i'm not swinging the club well going home and making great money having a good time and enjoying myself and i remember my good friend gene he said look like come to this pga thing because if you get in the pga and you can play in tournaments and the tournaments are really cheap and the money's good so i'm like oh, i'll become a pga member that sounds great for no reason of becoming a coach and um so i go and i'm thinking okay as long as i stay in the pga i can play them on monday tournaments and um make some money. Well, the long story short is I never played one of those tournaments. I got into it for playing one of those tournaments. And Dana Rader, who was just, just won a big award with the LPGA was standing there and she presented and she says, one day in your life, you might get to a point of realizing that playing golf for you is not your path and you should become a coach. And it was like, huh, never thought of that before. And that was my aha moment when I was like, you know what? I think I need to be a coach. Like I just, I don't think, I don't think playing is where I'm meant to be. Now that was difficult because I'd set my heart on you know, playing college golf and then becoming a professional and getting all the sponsorship. And and I called my sponsors and I remember just like getting off the phone with them in tears. Like, uh, you know, like I, I, because I told them, I was like, you know what, I'm you know, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. And I, I'd lost hundreds of thousands, I'd lost at least $100,000 of their money. And they're like, what do you mean? It's unbelievable what you did. Oh my God, you're in a rock star. Like you're the most, I tell everybody about you. And I'm like, I just cried so badly when I got off the phone, because what I did for a year and a half was beat myself, beat myself up. You're a piece of crap. You should be pressing harder. You should be doing better. All these people have died. You need to go out there and do this. And that was the mental self-talk that I had. And I'm losing these people's money and I'm just not, I'm just terrible. And they were, then. these people who were sponsoring me were some of the most successful people these people were very successful in terms of they were members at a very private club that I used to teach at. And, and many of them, you know, were just, yeah, multi-billionaires who people would know their names, you know, and they're like, man, I was so proud of you. You're amazing. I've told everybody. And I just, that was the first time I realized that I wanted to be a coach because I wanted people to realize that the self-talk that we have, the most important conversation we're ever going to have is a conversation we have with ourselves. Mm. And that I put all this pressure on myself. So when I'm teaching my juniors or I'm teaching my adults and they want to get a college scholarship or win the club championship, my whole focus is don't do what I did. Like, there's already enough pressure trying to get the ball in the freaking hole, let alone going, oh, I've just lost another (laughs) $3,000. Oh, don't screw this up, you know? And so that's really where my coaching style came from was like, look, how do I just make golf fun? Like, how do I get you out of your head? How do I get you to play the game again? and stop trying to perfect it. Because the minute I stopped playing professionally, i go out and play and shoot 67, 69. And I'm like, what the hell? Why is this happening? Well, I know why it's happening because I wasn't putting that pressure on myself. And so it was at that point in 2008 that I said, okay, so if I'm not going to play, there's no way I'm standing on a driving range for the rest of my life because that is not all I want to do. I want to teach people how to play the game of golf. and so. I just decided at that point i'm going to be a coach you know and and that was sort of the start of my coaching journey
0: yeah so when people you i love how you talk about the importance of the self-talk and how that's the most important conversation you have with anybody is a conversation you have with yourself when people are coming when people would come to you for coaching is that kind of the number one thing that you would address with most people like the conversation that they had in their head or what was the most kind of common struggle that people would come with and what's the step one to try to approach it
1: yeah so there's there's three things so the 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 system that i created is called the scoring method and so it was all about scoring right how how do you put a method to the madness of what people do and the first thing the belief that i have is you can't win the game if you don't know what the game is Mm. so you have to know what the real game of golf is and players will say oh i missed the fairway who cares i missed the green who cares you know, oh, I three putted. I care. You can't three put in golf. Like, that's the bad thing. So, they don't know the numbers. They don't know that the real game of golf is keep the ball in play and chip and putt like a maniac. That's it. That's the, that's the, so even if you're the best golfer in the world and you hit 14 greens, well, if you miss four greens and make four bogeys, you're not winning tournaments. You're making four pars when you miss the green and you're making five birdies, you're shooting 67 and you might be somewhere on the PGA tour nowadays. You got to shoot 63 to win. Mm-hmm. And so, the idea is, is like, I've got to teach you what the real game of golf is because what people think is they have a technique problem. They say, oh, my swing's not good enough. I'm like, no, 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 you have a tension problem. Mm. And see that was my problem is I didn't have a swing problem. My technique wasn't that bad. It was the tension that I was putting myself under. And so if you don't know that the real game of golf is how do you manage tension and you think it's how you manage a golf swing, you're going to struggle because every tour player knows I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, Sunday afternoon, back nine, 42, Rory McIlroy. Well, what you think he lost is golf swing like he lost his technique. No, the tension got to the point of, I'm gonna win my first major. It's gonna be a green jacket. It's gonna be really cool. Duck hook out of bounds on 10, 42. Now the difference between Rory McIlroy and somebody else is that Rory McIlroy goes away and does a bunch of incantations, which he talked about in a text after that. With enough incantations and positive belief, I will come back stronger. Well, the next one he played in was at Congressional. He shot 18 under, broke the scoring record and won the US Open. So he figured it out that the idea is I could either take that failure and say, I'm no good, and I'm no, not going to win, or go and win four majors in the next 12 events that he played in, the next 12 majors he played in, and become the number one player in the world. So the idea is he knew the game. The game, you, you get tension, you lose, you get feedback, you go back and do it again, and you learn from it. And so game, the, game, the real game of golf is a tension game, and the way to learn that is have right expectations. You don't have to hit the fairway, you don't have to hit the green, but you can't three putt, and you can't miss short putts, and you can't hit it out of bounds. So put your put your thinking in the right place and stop, oh, I can't believe I missed the green. Who cares? Stop stressing. Go and chip it to two feet and get it in the hole. So people don't, their, their expectations are way too high. They should hit it too straight and too far and, and consistently. I'm like, well, tour players don't even do that, but you're doing it to yourself. No wonder you're playing terrible. And I can tell you this because guess what? I did it as a professional golfer. I put too much pressure on myself and I didn't know how to manage tension. And so to me, that's the first step is let's make sure we understand what the problem is. Once we know the problem, we can start to solve it. So that's the first key to unlocking your potential.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's so key. I think um, the managing tension thing is so, I think it's gonna be so eye-opening. There's gonna be a lot of people who, who listen to this and play golf and they're gonna think like everybody goes to the driving range or they hit a bad shot and they think it's my swing, it's my swing, it's my swing. But I really loved your quote of, and the I forget, I'm not going to, I'm going to botch it, but the only way to improve the game is to know the game that you're actually playing. And I think that's so key because like you said, two putting is the name of the game and being just really good at chipping and putting in general. Who cares if you don't get the green in regulation, as long as you can chip in one putt, then you're good to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then people will say, but you don't understand my technique. I'm like, well, hold on you wouldn't be frustrated if you had bad techniques So any listener that's like, well, will you don't understand. I'm like, okay, but you wouldn't be frustrated because think about this. If you sucked on a Monday and you sucked on a Tuesday and you had a lesson on a Wednesday and sucked and went to the driving range before you teed off and sucked, you get on the first hole and now you suck. It's that you go to the range on a Tuesday, hit it great. On a Wednesday night, you play on your own and you hit it beautifully. You go to the lesson, you stripe it. You get on the driving range and it's all going good. You get on the first tee, lose two golf balls, shoot 52 on the front nine, drink beer on the back nine and think, what the hell's wrong with my golf game? So the frustration comes from the expectation that I know I can do it, but I can't do it when I need to. If you just had a terrible golf swing, you'd be like, I got an awful golf swing. There's no frustration to that. It's just, I need to go and get a lesson and work on my golf game. What most people don't realize is what they have actually works because like, you know, the first ever coaching program I did, I had a guy who's a pastor. So I know he can't lie and I play golf with him and he, he wanted to get rid of his slice. He wanted to get rid of his slice, but I told him it was a power fade and we went out there and we played the back nine of the golf course in the team a group of guys and he hit a power fade all day long and he had every single fairway and he said, yeah, but I don't like it. I'm like, Okay. Would you like a million dollars? Yes. I said, if I told you it was selling rubber dog shits, would you still take it? Yes. Okay, so get over what you sell and just make <laughs> darn money, right? Like it's better to sell crap and make a bunch of money that, that people want than sell Rolexes and lose them a lot of money, right? So he goes out the next round shoots 69, the next round shoots two one, uh, shoots one under. And he's like, I'm like, hey, let's work on your draw. And he's like, get away from me. I want to fade. I'm a fader of the golf ball. And he took ownership of what he had. And so here's a guy who fought his golf swing and went to swing lessons for years. And within two lessons, two coaching sessions on a golf course, he went from shooting mid to high 70s to breaking par, actually breaking 70, because we just took what he had and we gave him the freedom to say, you can play golf like this. Bruce, Bruce Litsky did it for a long time. Bo Watson still does it, you know? So it's things like that, that you just see transformational change, right? You know, in in the first coaching program I said was, if I got to teach you how to play, teach you how to think and teach you how to practice, I can't do it in a one-hour lesson. It's not possible. And I also can't do it one-on-one because there's no pressure one-on-one. You're standing on a driving range in front of me. Like, I'm going to tell you what to do correct. Like, if you can't hit it better in a golf lesson, you either need to quit golf because you really suck, or you have a terrible golf pro in front of you. Right. Because every pro can get you hitting it better. Do they ever walk to the first tee with you and go, right, now let's go and play and see if it works on the course. And then once they've done that, they go, now let me walk with you in a golf tournament and see if you can do it in a golf tournament. No, they just stand on the lesson tee. So to me, it was, I have to, re, I have to change the model. I cannot do this on a range and I can't do this one-on-one. We have to do it in a team. So I, I had 16 students. I said to them, listen, 12 weeks, $1,000. bucks. you are going to commit to me for 12 weeks and you're going to come out and just practice play with me. And I'm going to be out here 10, day, 10 times a week. So two sessions a day, five days a week. And they're Like they're in, and at the end of it, I had guys go from 105 to 80, 79 to 69, never touched a golf club to breaking 100. Uh, I, in my second program, I had a girl go from 142 to shooting back to back 40 41. Wow, but 142 for 18 holes that's a lot to add up to. That <laughs> is a lot. And Kerry McLean, if you, you're listening to this, you I still love you and you're still fantastic. And she's playing great golf, and she's an awesome golfer now. So what I did was I got to practice with my players and I couldn't teach them because I had 16 people out. I'd have eight people in a session, 12 people. And students would go, well, I want my one-on-one time. No, you don't. You don't want your one-on-one time because you're going to get confused. I want you to play a game against somebody and under pressure, see who can get to 10 first. Mm. Now, every putt you hit is under pressure. So I'm simulating what it feels like to play. Whereas when you stand in front of a pro and hit 100 putts in a row, it's like, well, you'll never do that in a tournament, and you'll never pro watching you. So you just did something that has no relevance to what you actually want to do called playing golf. And so we just changed the format where everything was about competition, everything was about having a fun time, beating each other, playing golf, and then practicing. And I taught them how to practice, and I taught them how to think, and I taught them how to play.
0: They yeah.
1: didn't work on their golf swings, and unbelievably, their golf swings got better. Why? Because they were picking the right clubs. They weren't taking driver off the first tee. They were taking four hybrid. They had a good mindset. They knew where to miss, so they swung with confidence. And guess what? Then they'd make a better golf swing. And the next thing you know, they'd hit a fairway. And it's like, oh god, my swing got better. Well, because I reduced tension. Because again, remember, when you're not under tension, you hit it good. When you're under tension, you hit it bad. So do you have a technique problem or a tension problem? So it was all about teaching them how to manage tension. And the next thing you know, the program sold out, and and the rest is history. Really, it just was just it just blew up from there.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a. I think it's a huge lesson kind of just in the in the grand scheme of things that if you're not doing well in a game that you're currently playing or whatever it is that you're currently participating in, it doesn't it's not necessarily your skill, it's how you're looking at the game itself and how you're defining success with the game itself. Cause one of the things I really like that you say is that you're not necessarily success isn't having the better golf swing. Success is having a lower score. And to be able to shift that mindset for people, I think, in a lot of different areas outside of golf as well. I think it's going to be really key when is there, is, has there ever been a biggest lesson or something that you've learned from a student that you've taught that has maybe shifted your mindset towards how you coach individuals?
1: Yeah. The first, the first guy who was in my first ever program, I mean, the scoring method, which, which I I've created came from the worst golf swing, admittedly from himself ever. I mean, Joe, he had the worst swing ever. And he said, well, I have the worst swing ever. And he aimed, I'm not even sure what degrees it would be. If if, if you were aiming at a target and the target was 12 o'clock, he would aim at 245. <laughs> His back was facing the target, but he hit the fairway almost every time with a low skanky low cut, every single time. And he put it in play and he just talks about, look, well, I just want to get in play. And if I do that, I get a check. And like, all I want to do is is it like, you know, I win, like he's his, you know, win the game. And then if I can get it down from there in three, I win the game and I, and I make a bogey and I'm like, that's fantastic. I love it. And he's like, we'll change my swing. I'm like, no, we really shouldn't change the swing. I'm like, we can start to take a bit of the over the top out of the move. Cause it's going to, you're going to get injured doing what you're doing. Um, but it really showed me that, you know, this concept of just simplifying stuff down and putting the ball in play. And um, because of that, you know, it just made me really, even go to that next level of just telling people like, who cares, just put it in play and have a short game. And so, yeah, it was, it was one of my first students and yeah, I'm ever indebted to him sort of being willing to say my swings awful, but again, I wasn't a swing changer. So I said, let's go and play. And I would see him to 42, 41, 43 for nine holes. And I'm like, Joe, I'm like, dude, you got it. Like, I mean, who cares? But he was desperate to hit it further and better. And we did help him to do that. Right. But really what I learned from him was just again, just how much, even for me, I would have looked at that swing and been like, we have to do something about that. We have to. Like, but I saw him his scores, and I'm like, and he wasn't saying I want to become a scratch golfer, right? He was just saying like, I'd love to you know, hit the ball a little bit further so it was a little easier to score. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I helped him with his chipping and some putting, and, and we worked on some things. But it really showed me that you could get the ball in the hole with next to absolutely nothing and everything in your goal swing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, one of the things that I kind of thought about was, first off, I can't imagine getting up on a tee box with somebody and them aiming that far away. I'd be like, what is going on right now? But, and then I thought about, I was like, you kind of have to block out caring what others think about you and have to be okay with doing it your way and defining the success, success for you in your own way. And I feel like that's kind of a, that's kind of a big lesson there too. But I want to kind of get down to the last few questions here and kind of go back to the Tsunami story and your injury and and kind of your life shift, if you will. Um, I think a lot of people, when they have, if they had something like that happen to them or that big of a negative experience, would take on this, you know, this victim mentality of what do I do now? But you were able to be like, okay, what can I actually do now to take advantage of the situation that I've been in? So what's your what's your message to somebody who goes through a negative experience. Maybe it doesn't have to be a tsunami in Thailand, but what's your message to somebody who goes through a negative experience to be able to not take on the victim mentality and be able to continue to make the most of whatever situation they're in?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, is that, you know, um, I empathize with them because um, it's not easy. You know what I mean? It isn't easy. And uh, I was very blessed. I mean, my wife was right next to me Hmm. and she went through everything the opposite. Her she was I was bust from the head up, she was bust from the hips down. Um, she lay there and watched death for twelve straight hours. Um, I saved people and pulled people into boats and helped them out and and felt like this. And so our experience was very different. Now she is so blessed that she lived and so grateful, but um it's a very different experience for her. You know, she had horrendous post-traumatic stress and horrendous nightmares and, and just it was just, you know, I didn't I didn't have that. Now do I think that was Will that did that? No, I think that, that, you know, God blessed me in a way that I, you know, I was able to just see it from the very start as like, my goodness, what can I do with this? So, um, I'm not going to tell anybody that's gone through a post-traumatic stress. We usually just think positive because that's not true. Um, because you know, our PTSD doesn't, it isn't, it's triggered on a subconscious level. It's triggered on a level of so that you have to process through. So it's not really just like, just think positive and you'll be fine. And then the world is a wonderful place. Um, but what I would say is I think what happened for me is I surrendered right then and there and then I lived. And so I'll put it to you this way is that I surrendered right then and there and my life was absolutely perfect for six months. It was just amazing, perfect. It was just absolute tranquility, peace. Like I've never experienced. Uh, And then what I decided to do was say, well, you know what, I need to pay this mortgage. So I probably should, you know, start to pay those bills and I need to grab this back and I need to grab this back. And there's actually this as well. I need to grab that back and that back and that back. And the next thing, you know, a year and a half, two years later, I might've had a golf Academy. I might've had all this stuff going for me and all the success, but I was riddled with anxiety. I was just stressed out of my mind. I was burnt out. I was overwhelmed. I was probably depressed. And just, yeah, to be honest, I was just, I was really struggling because I was trying to fix everything and it was going to be okay. And I was going to prove to the world that all these people died, but it was okay. Cause I lived and I'm going to show them, I'm going to play on tour and it's going to be great. And I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. That's to say the least, I wasn't happy. And it was at that point in, in my life that I kind of picked up on, you know what, when I surrendered, it all went well. And now I'm not surrendering. I'm taking control of it. And so for those of you who are out there who've been through something harrowing, who've, who've, I mean, uh, it's not hard what I went through, you know, it, it, just isn't because if I lost a child or if I lost my spouse or if I, you know, those are real things, that stuff like, you know, to me, I lived 250,000 people didn't live. They lost their children. They lost their families. And many of you probably have been through that. And, um, I'm just not going to tell you right now, think positive because that's not possible it's not easy to do that. To me, what it was, was is to surrender again. And what I realized was uh, whatever journey you have in faith is that's up to you. But for me, it was to start to realize, you know what? I need to start to surrender. I need to stop getting out of control and trying to control everything. Uh, and usually what God does is he helps you to hit your knees. And when you hit your knees pretty hard and you drop to the ground and you realize I can't do this the way I'm doing it, even though on the outside, my business was booming, everyone was loving it. But on the inside, I was really struggling um, so to me, I would say that my blessing was I was shown how to surrender because I had no option i i didn't I could have breathed in that water or, or it could have been half a second later, and I would have died um but I surrendered and god gave God gave me exactly what he offers to us, which is is complete grace right just total grace, just total freedom um in and being literally like held by him. And then two years later, I realized what I had to do is I had to ask for that. I had to actually ask to say, you know what? I've come to the end of will. Will doesn't work very well. And uh, it's time for you to take it back over. And I think that's the beauty about it is, um, you know, the faith of a mustard seed. You know, we all struggle with who God is. We all struggle with religion. We all struggle with, you know, all of that. Everyone does. If you don't, uh, well, good for you. But if you start hitting your knees and saying, you know what? I just can't figure this out. and, And I'm in pain and I'm struggling it's amazing how God shows up. Um, and that's different for everybody. So I would just say that I was blessed to be able to surrender without trying. And then I was willing to hit my knees again and surrender. And now, you know, on a daily basis, if I don't surrender, I know what's coming. I'm going to get kicked in the teeth by myself again. Amazingly, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. Uh, so to me, I would just say to anyone listening, who's struggling, who's been through things like that is, you know, hitting your knees and surrendering is not quitting. It's not failing. What it's doing is just like we talk about in golf is let go of the tension, let go of the control, let go of the struggle. And guess what? Boom, out comes your best golfer. Well, the same in life. The best you comes out when we get out of our own way and our God-given gifts and our God-given talent is handed out. Uh, and that to me is the blessing. So that's, that's what I would just say to anybody who is struggling. Whether you know Golf isn't what I teach. I teach people, I help people to unlock their potential through the game of golf. So if you can take what we've talked about in golf and put it into your life and realize that the tension we add is the control that we're putting on ourselves and it's made up. It's not real. Uh, and that the way to do that is to go back to what, you know, you've all been given gifts. Now go back to them and get out your own way. And that's where the golfer shows up and that's where you show up. And so that would be my that would be my take for anybody listening. That's uh, that's in that position right now
0: yeah I love it. I love it well before I ask the last question here, will, I want to acknowledge you for your ability to be able to surrender to the situation and and try not to over be over controlling of the things that you're unable to control but just kind of hyper focus on on those things that you actually can control and for you to be able to communicate that in a way to to everyday people who are trying to just improve their golf game and to communicate to it to them in the game of golf. And then they, they have the ability to translate it outside to their life is, I know it's been so powerful for so many of the people that you've coached. I know it's gonna continue to be more and more powerful as well, uh, but the last question here is, I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey and it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm gonna get closer to the best version of myself is gonna be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer, to that best version of Will Robbins that you could possibly be, what are those three things that you could currently do or work on?
1: Um, surrender daily, like just every day, just learn how to get out of my own way right away, hand it up and, and, and make sure that I'm not doing my own will. Cause it doesn't, my, my will needs to be handed up to to, to my higher power to God Second thing would be uh, start focusing on myself because what I find is, and I'm, trust me, I'm trying not to sound spiritual because I'm a disaster, and I'm just saying is when I do these things, I do a lot better. Um, is uh, focus on constant thought of others, which is like you know if I can get out of myself and what can I do for other people, uh, because I feel like when I'm looking after others and caring for others, God takes care of me. When I'm looking after myself, I'm just a wreck. Um, and then finally, it would be um, sort of patience and balance just realizing that it just doesn't all happen in a day and it's not meant to uh, and just being willing to to find that balance where i don't have to push the extra go the extra mile every day you know it's it's about yes i'm passionate about what i do but i've also got two young children and a wife and and and, and family and friends and and church and there's things that there's there's a balance to everything and so I constantly, you know, struggle when I take control of, of that balance is out of whack, and so I would say those would be my three.
0: Awesome, great three. I love those. I love those. Well, well, I appreciate it. I'll have to uh, come out there and get myself a golf lesson because God knows Absolutely. I need I need my score to be shaved off a few a few strokes. So I appreciate yeah,
1: I'm looking it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. And I mean, find me your email, and I'll fire over the the scoring method to you, and take a look at the videos and sort of check it out. And it's uh it's it's a it's a fun journey to be on.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Well.
1: Thanks for having me on the
0: show. Yeah, of course. There you have it. Now, I know we went all over the place during that interview, but there was so much great information and tips and stuff in there. We talked about how kids should not specialize in their sport from an early age, both from a physical and a mental standpoint. We talked about the importance of not trying to over-control your life and how you have to surrender the outcome. We talked about how sometimes if you're not being successful in the game that you're currently playing, maybe it's not your ability that's off, maybe it's the way that you're viewing the game and maybe you need to view it differently. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who you feel would get something out of it. Share it to somebody who's a big golf fanatic because they are going to want to take his online course called The Scoring Method. Again, you can find that in the show notes. Maybe share it to somebody who you feel is taking on the victim mentality right now and show them how they can actually take control of their situation. For now, it's time to take action. Don't over control your life. Control what you can, but then surrender the rest. Also, if you're not being super successful in the game that you're currently playing, whether it's at work, whatever it is, maybe it's again, not your ability, but maybe it's the way that you're viewing the game. Maybe you need to take a step back and gain some perspective and view it a little bit differently. But for now, it's time. It's time to surrender daily, to practice patience and balance because these are the things that are going to every single day get you closer and closer to your best you. Thank you.